Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we we thank you so much for an opportunity to come and study, and we ask that your spirit of truth and love will join us this morning and help us find that path back to unity with the rest of the unfallen universe. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And I want to thank um, all of you locally and you, our friends online, who are just uh, supporting us with your prayers and and uh, care for us. We uh, get letters and emails from all over the world regularly, and we appreciate hearing from you and, and how the Lord is working in your local community, so we want to thank you. We are doing lesson number four in our quarterly, The Key to Unity, and it's entitled Oneness in Christ. Our quarterly is entitled Oneness in Christ, and the lesson is The Key to Unity. And the memory text is out of Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. And they read it, and they cite it out of the New King James Version, and it reads, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. What is the, what is a mystery? A mystery. What is a mystery? Something unknown, something hidden, something not understood. Okay, And then in this text, make known to us the mystery of his will. What is this mystery? The thing that was not yet known or understood. What, what was this mystery? As described in the text. That the universe will be unified back into one through Jesus Christ. He will unite the universe. That's the mystery. Are there other mysteries in the Bible? Watch this. Let's let's do this. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Uh, Starting verse 27, Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he had about, uh, he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to the things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed me what is is going to happen. As for this mystery, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Now, what was the mystery that was revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel? What do you think it was? It was the, 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 the dream of his image, right? But what's the mystery? Well, this is still quoting from Daniel, verses 44 and 45. In the time of those kings, which are represented in the feet, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will set itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision. And the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, bronze, clay, and silver into pieces. What is it describing in this symbolism? What is this mystery that's being revealed? The kingdom of God. Bringing all things back into one. A unified kingdom again. It's the same mystery, just described in a different way. Romans 11, 25 and 26. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. What is this mystery? Same thing. It's bringing the Gentiles in and, and unifying one body. Romans sixteen twenty five and 27. Now to him is to able to establish you by the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. What's this mystery? 
Same thing, bringing all things into unity through Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. What, what's being described here? What's the mystery here? It's the second coming and the accomplishment of restoring the universe back into God's perfection, which is bringing us all back into one. The same mystery. Just a little more detail about the physical elements there, but it's still the same process. Ephesians 2, excuse me, 3, 2 through 6. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ. Do you see that this mystery is the same mystery? Again, how about this one? Ephesians 5, 25-33. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his Wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For the re- for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. What, what, what mystery is this? It's the same mystery, bringing us back into unity with Christ. But now maybe we get a little bit more. This is what, this is what Christ was praying for in John 17 we talked about last week. I pray, Father, they will be one, as I am in you and you in me, that we all may be united in one. As the two, two join together, they become one. It's the same type dynamic. It's a mystery. The mystery of God working through Christ to bring us into one. How about this one? Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery? Does this give insight into perhaps mechanistically what's necessary for us to achieve the mystery, to come into unity, to be one? What? We have to have Christ. Does that mean we have to have the same doctrines? No. <laughs> so, God, so this mystery is God's plan of action to remove sin, selfishness, lies, corruption, and all deviations from his perfect design of love and restore his character of love, his methods of truth and freedom into our hearts and minds, bringing us into genuine unity with him and the unfallen beings in heaven. That's the plan, isn't it? That's the mystery. Do you agree with that? If you agree with that, then consider this text, Revelation ten seven. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What was that, Revelation 1? 10, 7. 
the mystery of God will be accomplished when the seventh angel is about to sound its trumpet. And the seventh angel's trumpet is the second coming when it sounds. That's the second coming. So just prior to the sounding of the seventh angel's trumpet, the mystery of God is going to be accomplished. Well, what, what is the mystery of God that's going to be accomplished? After all the text we just read, what is it? Unity. That we will be brought into oneness. That we will have Christ in you. That our hearts will be recreated. That we will be Christ-like. And that becoming Christ-like in heart and character brings us into unity. When in human history is this time period? This period right before the seventh angel is going to... When, when in human history is that? Right before Christ comes. Yeah, but when? Today. This is, this is now. We are in that time. This is right before the... It's, today. it's not in the, 70, in the 1700s or the 1600s or, or 1000 AD. It's not a time of Christ. That wasn't right before the seventh angel is about to, to sound. We are living in the time. The truth about God. So what is it that brings us what's required for this unity? The truth about God, which wins us to trust. And we trust him, we open the heart, which invites the Holy Spirit in. And the Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it enough. We get new desires, new motives, new longings. It is not unity of thought. It is unity of heart, affection, love, principles, methods, motives. That's what we're united on. Can we be united in Christ and still differ on our understanding of the beasts of Revelation? Can we be united in Christ and still differ on what day we attend church? Can we be united in Christ and be different on how we ceremonially baptize? Or what version of the Bible we read? Or how we partake communion? Or what foods we eat? Or how we dress? But we cannot be united in Christ if we are selfish in character and driven by fear. Can we? Anybody? No? So what is it that incites fear and selfishness? What incites it? Disconnection with Christ. Believing lies. Remember? Lies believed. You're in a healthy, other-centered, loving marriage. You love and trust your spouse. Your spouse loves and trusts you. And somebody comes and tells you a lie. Maybe your own child. Maybe your own brother. With tears in their eyes, they tell you that they've discovered your spouse is having an affair. And they pull out pictures they've doctored on their computer to make it appear as if your spouse is somebody else. Now, while it's not true and your spouse is still faithful and loyal, if you believe the lie, does something inside of you change? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And as soon as that circle of love and trust is broken because you've got a lie now operating, I don't trust you, I think you're cheating on me, That incites fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of getting hurt. I'm afraid of betrayal. I'm afraid of abandonment. I'm afraid of a disease. I'm afraid of of being alone. I'm afraid. Fear, which leads me to have to protect myself. So you're not getting in bed with me because you're not going to give me a disease and and I'm going to get to the bank and get that money before you. This is the survival of the fittest drive. This is the human infection because of what Adam and Eve have done. So we understand this. Anything that breaks our trust in God, any distortion, any lie, Satan is the father of, any lie about God that we believe undermines our trust in him. We agree with that. Which keeps fear operating. Thus, theologies that cause us to mistrust God, to live in fear of God, to utilize methods of selfish world, to punish, to coerce, to comply, to conform, cause division and fragmentation and undermine God's plan. 
And we at this time in earth's history, where we stand today, we have a message, a special message, a powerful message, a healing message, an ennobling, a triumphant message, a message to lighten the world, to dispel the darkness, to free hearts and minds, to bring people back into unity with Christ. And it is the message of Revelation 14, the three angels' message, to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst, which is a call back to design law. God, the creator who built his universe to operate on unchangeable protocols. These are the way I've constructed life to operate. Now, you as a free sentient being, you can dis- you can choose to break that design, but you can't choose to break that design and live. You can choose to take a plastic bag and tie it over your head and selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself, but you can't do that and live. Thus, the wages of sin is death. To come out of a system described in the Scripture as Babylon, a confusing system. And why is it so confusing? Because it's based on imposed law, the types of laws humans make up. And when we make up laws... There's always an exception. There's always a, a, a different variable. There's always all the, th- think how confusing our legal justice system is. Think how confusing the rules of all the different Christian denominations are. It's very confusing. It's a mess. Why? Because they're all operating on this idea that God runs his universe no different than Caesar runs Rome. He's got a system of rules and you've got to find out the right rules. And not only do you have to find out the right rules and you have to find out the right way to comply with those rules. And if you don't comply with the right way with those rules, then God's got a little checkbox and a little book in heaven. And if, he, and if you don't get something done to take care of that little checkmark in your book in heaven, then God is going to have to use his power to hurt you and torture you. It's a corruption. <clears throat> We gotta, if we really want to come back and give this message that's going to prepare hearts and minds, we have to help people understand that God is the creator and his laws are the laws upon reality work. Adam took the species out of harmony and through Christ who took up humanity, he is putting the species back into harmony, fixing what Adam broke to us. And we through Christ can participate in that and have our hearts renewed, have the law written on our hearts and minds, have the heart circumcised by the spirit, be reborn, be regenerated, be recreated. We can be renewed through God's work in us. It's not our work, but it's our requirement to participate in what he's doing. We have to reject these penal, legal, substitutionary constructs because they incite fear and prevent the final message from going to the world. Now, what is another word for bringing us all into unity? Atonement. Atonement. That's right. And so just before the seventh angel is about to sound, the, the mystery of God, which is bringing us into unity, a oneness in Christ, or atonement, at one so we're living in the antitypical day of atonement. That's exactly right. That's the time we're living in. And what is another symbolic way, through symbolism, you know, parable, symbolism, metaphor, symbolic way of teaching the mystery of God taking a universe out of harmony and bringing them back into at one with him. What's another symbolic way of showing that? The sanctuary. The day of atonement. It's all metaphorical, symbolic, trying to describe, trying to get us to comprehend. God is working to bring us into unity. And the Day of Atonement happens right before in the, in the annual feastly cycle, which represents the, from the time of sin to the time of restoration, right before the day, uh, the um, Feast of Tabernacles, where we will tabernacle with God in an earth made new. They, te- they built those little, you know, huts out of green briars or green, green branches. 
uh, symbolically saying we're going to be in a, a new earth, in the garden again with God, tabernacling, living with him. But that happens after the mystery of God is accomplished. And the mystery of God is restoring Christ's likeness in us so that we come into unity with him and the rest of the unfallen universe. So anything that you know about the sanctuary message that has action happening in books and records and not in people is a distortion. It's a misunderstanding. You might even say it's a falsehood. Anybody want to challenge me on that? Pause. Because I'd love to. (laughs) Okay, Sunday's lesson. First paragraph, Sunday's lesson. But I'm telling you, there's deep stuff there. Deep stuff, guys. Really powerful, deep stuff. The followers of Jesus have much to praise God for. In Christ, God has chosen to adopt us as sons and daughters and to represent him to the world. Paul uses many images to describe our new relationship in God uh, to God in Christ. Of these images, the image of adoption addresses the lesson's theme of oneness. In Christ, we have been adopted and belong to the family of God. The family image also is a reference to God's covenant with the children of Israel. In the context of Paul's epistle, Gentiles who accept Jesus as the Messiah are, are also are children of God, heirs to the promises made to Israel. In Christ, we have been adopted. What does, quote, in Christ, unquote, mean? Okay? So this is one, I think it has two primary meanings. And I think that's one of them. That one of the meanings is in unity, as individuals, we can come through surrendering and open our hearts to have a united heart, mind, attitude, devotion. We practice methods. We have been united in our hearts and practices through the work of the Spirit. We are in Christ in union. That's one, one meaning, but there's another meaning. And I think they're both true here. In Christ means in the person of Jesus Christ, in his own victory as the second Adam, the species human was fixed. Humanity in Christ, in his work, restored to perfection. And now in Jesus, the human race stands in its right position at the right hand of God again. So in the person of Jesus Christ, the species human was restored. So I think it means both. In Christ, the the, the species, and in union, when we are in Christ, we're in union with him. So what of the idea of adoption then? When you hear we are adopted as sons and daughters, do you hear a legal process? This is how I grew up hearing it. This is how I grew up uh, being taught about it. That we have a legal declaration. We are declared to be children of God. We are adopted and it's a process where you go into a courtroom and you have documents and you get, you know, you are... Or is adoption an actual, literal, real event in some way, and has nothing legally to do at all. In fact, zero legality. What's the difference between something being real and something being legal? We can pass laws to make marijuana, tobacco legal. Can we pass laws to make them healthy? Or how about this one? We can pass, can a country pass a law that says that one race of people are not fully human in some way? They're subhuman as in what the Nazis did and to the Jews, or perhaps Jim Crow laws in this country at some time in the past. But does that make it true or real? Because there's a law like that. No. So adoption. What, 
The act of adopting. What does it mean to adopt? In its most fundamental meaning, you can look it up in the dictionary if you want, it means the act of adopting, uh, which applies where we get this idea of adopting children, it means to take or to choose as one's own, making one's own by actual selection or agreement or assent. That's what adoption means. So John adopted the nickname JJ. He took it as his own. So adopt means to take something as one's own by a specific specific choice. So what would it mean to be adopted by God? That God chose us specifically. Yes, he did. That after Adam and Eve chose to break their unity with God and alienate themselves in heart, mind, character, God, through Christ, chose to take humanity, i.e. the species human, back as his own, to make it his own. How? How did he make it his own? Jesus adopted humanity when he became incarnate. Get your mind where I just said. Jesus adopted humanity. He didn't simply appear as human. He became human. He adopted humanity as part of his being for all eternity. You see, this is quite profound. Way more significant than a legal declaration. And he fixed in this adopted humanity. See, humanity is not his by nature. Is it? But he became human. He adopted it. And he took it. And he will hold it for all eternity. And he took humanity, he adopted it, and he fixed what Adam did to this humanity. He restored God's perfect original design. So humanity became God's by the choice of God to adopt humanity in the person of Jesus. Now, do we have an individual part to play in our personal adoption as sons and daughters of God. See, while God through Christ adopted the human species when he became incarnate, we must adopt, personally assent or choose to make our own, we must adopt the new heart and right spirit freely offered us through Christ. So would you say that's the new birth that's being born into the family of God? Yes. Yes, Wendell. So this has always bothered me a little bit, this adoption metaphor, because um, it's maybe not a metaphor, it's real, but I mean, my understanding of it as a metaphor, um, because we were God's children and strayed, and now we're being adopted again. And the thing that helps me the most is the prodigal son. Because the prodigal son was, was one of the family. He left... He was no longer part of the family. He came back, even though he didn't have the right idea about what it was like to be a son. I mean, he, he was bargaining and all his other stuff, etc. Level four, low thinking. He truly was adopted back as part of the family. So is there a difference between being a son and being part of the family? Mm-hmm. But see, this adoption thing, how, how does he become adopted whenever he was already a son? Okay, he wasn't. There was no adoption in that metaphor. And, and parables have limitations. 
So in this particular illustration or the use of adoption, I'm going very literally here. Christ did adopt humanity. He actually did. And we have to adopt godliness into our life because we don't have it naturally. Okay? I'm going to give some quotes here in a minute. Yes. And then you. One of the things that drew me to uh, have a relationship with God, uh, you know, there were so many different denominations out there that were pointing to a, a beautiful forever, you know. But when I came into the knowledge that there may be a creator out there, the thing that really drew me to it was the fact that there was an understanding of a being before us. There was something that was there. So I felt like I, I felt like I was adopted because I didn't know my father and I didn't know the history of my family that God gave me. So uh, for me, it was very important. I, I felt like that adopted child that when I met him, I felt like there was a past that all of a sudden came together. So. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, what you're referencing is so he adopted the state of being human, not actually humanity. So he became flesh. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's profound because the Day of Atonement deals with a corporate confession. It, it's the state of Israel, a, a group of people, as opposed to individual salvation, the salvation of individuals. So when he adopted humanity, it wasn't that he ended, adopted us in this room right. individually, but corporately, the, the nature of man. So yeah, that's what I like to say, he adopted the species. That's how I say it, the, the species human. Which is significant. Yeah, yeah. He started from scratch. And thus he becomes the second Adam. Yes, the second head of the species. We were all in Adam. Yeah. Significant to the right. day of atonement because right. as a corporation, they were representing Abram uh, and the seed as a church sure. in, in, the, in the wilderness. Yes. Yeah. Adoption is a legal term. It can be, but it, the legal term only comes from the actual term. Right. But the Bible also speaks that relationship is built by marriage. And whatever you say about adoption applies to marriage. So marriage is a legal term. Now it is. <laughs> See, that's my point. The same with adoption. And I want to make that people want to jump on adoption as a legal term, only in the most narrow defined. And, and the legal adoption is actually an outgrowth of the literal adoption. Just like marriage is not a legal term, but it has become a legal term. Just like covenant is a relationship. Right. Like so I interrupted you. Go ahead. So the Bible speaks of relationship between the believers. And Christ as a marriage. To begin with, we have example of Isaac and Rebecca. There was no legal transaction. They met, they agreed, and they became a new unit. And so we adopt, are adopted to Christ the same way. We come to him, come to an agreement and say, I want to belong to you. And he says, I do belong to you. And so we have a marriage relationship. And whatever goes through is on that level. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, questioning about the question of God making an agreement with humanity. I don't marry 50 women. And one woman cannot marry 50 men. I'm I'm not following your point. The point is that if God says, 
I adopted you as a humanity, mm-hmm. I have nothing to do with it. See, that's the legal way, and we're, and we're, and we're just throwing that out because I don't think that applies. That legal definition of adoption, and that was my next question. After the, after what I just read, do you hear any legal aspects? No. What Christ actually did, God said, um, I will become incarnate. I will take humanity upon me. And thus, in the person of Jesus Christ, if you understand what he achieved and what he accomplished, the species human was perfected. And if no other member of our race participated with God, the species human was saved. Humanity was saved in the person of Jesus Christ first and foremost. All the rest of us are gravy. Saved by our belief in that event. Saved by yeah, our trust in him and then opening the heart and receiving all that Christ achieves in our behalf. Truth that dispels lies, wins us to trust. A new character that Christ developed that we could not develop that he, he, he restores in us. It says in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Perfect. Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Bible perfection is perfect character. And character has to be developed by the exercise of the, of the sentient being. And after Adam's sin, no human being could do it. So Christ adopted humanity and exercised human capacities and human abilities and a human brain and a human will in order to resist temptation, in order to live in harmony with God's design, in order to eliminate the, the, the infection that tempts us. And you see in Gethsemane, he's tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, because his human will resisted it and overcame, and he developed a perfect, sinless human character that we, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, become participants of. Yes. So we are of the same blood. Yes, that's what it says in Scripture. If you have, like, when we think of of adoption as just a legal transaction, the son will say, this is my father, and the father will say, this is my son. But if you do DNA analysis, they're not. It's just a legal fiction. But when we partake of Christ, we actually get the character of Christ, and thus we are literally like Christ. We are part of the family, and that's part of the adoption. So, as I was making, and that's the next step in in where we're going. The first step was Christ adopted humanity, literally. It wasn't a legal declaration. He achieved it, he did it. And then, as individuals, we get adopted into the family when we adopt divinity. What's the universe in the future? Do you think we're going to have sin for all eternity? We will one day be sinless. Of course we will. Okay, so we become partakers of the divine nature, it says Peter. We adopt or partake of his nature. He took our nature and offers us his nature. This is the actual adoption. And let let me read you these these quotes. This is uh, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church wrote in the book Councils on Health, page 528, the following. The principles of heaven are to be adopted and practiced by those who claim to walk in the Savior's footsteps. Hmm. What's described here? We are to adopt by our choice the principles of heaven. Is this part? Could this be part of being adopted? Is this related or connected to being adopted in the family of God? Here's another quote. Four four Testimony 109. If we wish to be adopted into the family of God, to become children of the heavenly king, we must comply with his conditions. I'm going to pause right there in the middle of the quote. Does this indicate that for us as individuals, it is not a legal declaration where God says, I'm adopting you all, and you're all adopted now. You're all part of the family. This implies that we're not part of the family until we comply with the conditions. That's what the, that's what's implied here. Now, while he adopted the species human, we as individuals don't enter in until we adopt 
the gift of salvation, the divine nature, the new heart and the right spirit. Let's keep going with the conditions. We must come out from the world and stand as a peculiar people before the Lord, obeying his precepts and serving him. What does that mean? Obeying his reason. Do you, what, what law lens are you reading this and hearing this through? Do you hear through human law? Well, he's got a system of rules, and if you don't keep his rules, then he'll punish. Or do you hear through design law, that he has created his universe to operate in harmony with his nature of love, and that's the protocols for all health, all wellness, all life, all goodness, and we have to comply with his designs in order to live in his universe. That's his precepts. Here's this one. This is uh, the Southern Review, July 18, 1899. God wants every child of tender age to be his child, to be adopted into his family. Young though they may be, the youth may be members of the household of faith and have the most precious experience. They may have hearts that are tender and ready to receive lasting impressions. Their hearts may be drawn out in confidence and love for Jesus, and they may live for the Savior. Christ will make them little missionaries. The whole current of their thoughts may be changed so that sin will not appear a thing to be enjoyed, but to be hated and shunned. What do you hear described here as being adopted into the family of God? Do you hear a legal process going on here? Or do you hear something happening in the child? That's what it means. And I'm telling you, this legal thing This penal, substitutionary, legal thing that has infected our church contributes to the fragmentation, contributes to the fear, contributes to the obstruction of our church and any church's ability to take the final message of mercy to the world. We are, we are not being united because we're, we're arguing over the legal mechanics and legal rules that you have to comply with in order for your books in heaven to be cleansed rather than recognizing we have to come into a unity of character and methods and principles. Wendell. You know, what Christ said, the, the devil is coming, but there's nothing that's attractive to him in, in me. And we need to be that same way. There's nothing attractive about evil that attracts us to evil. We have become so transformed. That's right. That's right. And Bible perfection, you know about being perfection? Bible perfection, what is it? Is it about never dribbling soup on your chin? Is that what Bible perfection is? It is not. The Bible perfection is about loving others more than self. Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 11, describes the people on earth prior to the second coming who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes. And it uses these words. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Now, you know, just pause for a moment. What's the natural primary drive of sinful human beings? Survival of the fittest, save self. That's the drive. Perfect, which is driven by fear and need to protect self. Survival of the fittest, save self. Perfect love casts out all fear. This is describing a group of people on earth when Christ comes that are not driven by that survival drive anymore. They're willing to lay down their lives that others might live. Greater love is no man that he give his life. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We don't give our lives for our brothers. This is not something you can get or achieve by hard work. This is not something you can get by being going through the right rituals, by washing the right number of feet in communion service, by observing the right day of worship. You can't get this by doing any of that stuff. This is only achievable by a trust relationship with our Creator 
and participating willfully, choosing to adopt because you value, you love, you trust him into your heart. At the end of the third paragraph in the lesson, it states, quote, God does not use coercion to save anyone, unquote. I think this is well said. I think this is absolutely true. And without exception, God never uses coercive power to save. It cannot, in fact, use it because it's a violation of his actual law upon which life is built, the law of liberty. Love only exists in an atmosphere of genuine freedom. You cannot get love, trust, loyalty, devotion, and friendship by threatening to kill people if they don't love, trust, and be your friend. You can't get it. It's only through love that love is awakened. Yes. That statement was found, I just read that this morning in the first uh, chapter of Acts of the Apostles. That coercion statement that you just read, I just read it this morning. Also, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was not, you know, Genesis 3.15, God would put enmity between thee and the woman. So that wasn't naturally there, that's something that God did. That's right. After the fact. What's the relationship with that and the adoption? So the point being is, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, if God doesn't intervene, there is a perfect unity between sinful Satan and sinful mankind. There was nothing in humanity anymore that resonated with the kingdom of God. Instead, the, the, the human species would be totally corrupted and on Satan's side, lest, except God that chose not to let us go, and he intervened. In the woman, meaning the metaphor of the human species, the church, uh, with his spirit to convict, to draw, to give us a longing for the better land so that we are not satisfied with the things of sin and the things of the world. And then through Christ, adopting humanity, becoming human, and providing us an opportunity to then be partakers of the divine nature. So this is well said. God can, uh, God does not use coercion to save anyone. If we accept this as a truth, without exception, then can we identify ideas taught in Christianity that we have to kick out and reject? We can see corruption in Christianity because there's things in Christianity that teach God uses coercion. So any idea that has God using his power to inflict punishment on sin and sinners, any idea that has God coercive in any way is his nature is a lie, And that would include imperial human law constructs that justice require that God hold a courtroom scene, examine record books, um, have a committee in heaven during the thousand years to add up how much each person needs to suffer, and then at the end of the thousand years, wake them up from their sleep and then toss them into a fire and make sure they all get the exact amount of seconds that they get before he kills them. This would be a lie. You can know that that does not work that it does not work that way. God is how about God is yeah um, that Jesus died to pay a legal penalty. God will torture people in hell. God is the source in some way of inflicted pain, suffering. We need someone to stand between us and God to protect us from God to plead, "My blood, my blood, Father." Such ideas obstruct trust, incite fear, oppose love, and damage minds, hearts, characters, relationships, and increase the division and fragmentation in the church and the world. If we reject all the false, legal, imperial punishing views of God, does that mean there's actually no punishment for sin? 
and that everyone gets saved. If we, if we reject the imperial view of God as a Supreme Court justice, looking down, finding fault, he is the inflictor of pain and punishment to be just on all the unrepentant. If we reject that view and say God does not inflict punishment, does not use his power to torture and kill, does that mean there's no punishment for sin and everyone's saved? See, some people jump to that conclusion. They'll say, oh, you're a universalist. Oh, you say there's no punishment. No, there's definite punishment for sin. It just doesn't come from God. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. This is scripture I'm quoting. Is there, is there a punishment for jumping off a tall building? Is there a punishment for smoking cigarettes? Is there a punishment for abusing drugs? Is there a punishment for cheating on your spouse, even if your spouse never finds out? Is there a punishment? I'm telling you guys, I see this in my office every day. There's guilt. There's worry. There's anxiety. There's lack of peace. There's character corruption. There is suspiciousness. There's no joy in the marriage. There's, there's all kinds of problems happening in the person who's the cheat. And they can't avoid it. You cannot avoid it. It's not an infliction. Is there a punishment for welding without eye protection? And where does all the, where do all these punishments come? From where? From the breaking the laws upon which God built life. And who, now we're going to get, we're going to take you a step farther today. Who continues to sustain the operation of those laws? The, the design laws. Who continues to sustain the laws that nature and life are built upon? Who sustains them? God continues to sustain them. He continues to hold them, which means what in context of what we're talking about? God will not change his universe to meet sinners in their sin. We must be changed to live in harmony with God and his design. As Jesus said, this is Matthew 5.18. Remember as long, that as long as heaven and earth last, not the least point or the smallest detail of the law will be done away with. Why? To change the slightest little bit of God's design law, the universe as we know it would not exist. You change gravity by the one to the 60 with, I think it's like a hundred, several hundred more thousand zeros to it. Just change it the slightest. And the universe as we know it doesn't exist. Change the nuclear, the law of the nuclear force that holds molecules together in the slightest. And life as we know it doesn't exist. You can't change God's laws in the slightest and have life continue as God designed it. So his laws will never change. And with that in mind, I want you to tell me then what this means. If you ever wondered about this one. First Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Have you ever wondered about that one? The power of sin is the law? The law gives sin power? You ever wondered that one? Think through what we just talked about. Think through design law lenses. What gives the power to punish someone for jumping off the Empire State Building? Where does the power of the punishment come from? From the law of gravity. Where does the power to punish the two-pack-a-day smoker come from? 
Where does the power to punish the welder with no eye protection come from? Okay? Get your mind around that. That's right. And so the power of sin is the law. That's where the power, where does the power to cause death come from for a person who jumps in the ocean with, with weights tied around their legs? The law of respiration. They're breaking it, and that's where the power comes from. When you and where does all the confusing stuff come from? So, understanding this, we can understand how God punishes sin. Do you ever read any statements from any of the inspired writers in Scripture about God punishing sin? You understand it will always come back to some element like this. So we could say in one sense, well, God made the laws of respiration and he sustains them. He won't suspend them and he doesn't stop them from working. So the person who jumps in the ocean receives punishment from breaking the law and then God is sustained. So you could say, well, it's because God made it that way and so God's punishing. Only by holding his laws and not changing them. Not by inflicting. The last paragraph, yes? Is that his wrath? The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans uh, chapter 1, verse well, 18. There's a verse in Isaiah that says, In a little wrath I hid my face from you. Right. That's what wrath ultimately is when God surrenders people and lets them go to reap what they have chosen. And so Christ on the cross experienced, quote, the wrath of God when God surrendered Christ to experience what Christ chose, and Christ chose to be the means of defeating Satan and saving the species human, and God let him go to that end. He didn't intervene to stop it. But God did not inflict or pile on any punishments upon Christ. That's the way it's explained in our society. Radio, those you work with, anybody. Right. That's because they're explaining it through the human law construct. And the human law construct, there is a rule, and you broke it, there's no inherent consequence. So wrath has to come from an external source to make you pay for breaking the rule. Under design law construct, the wrath comes when the, uh, the, the designer stops intervening to prevent the consequences that you would experience otherwise. That's the difference. It all goes back to design law. The last paragraph states, God, God's will, God wills that all men should be saved. For ample provision has been made in giving his only begotten son to pay man's ransom. Now, when you hear language like that, what law lens are you looking through? If you look through the human law lens, you come to this, well, somebody had to make a payment. And thus theories come up in the uh, in various his- times in history. Well, well, uh, somebody had to pay something to the devil who who uh, and 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 gave his life in exchange uh, to the devil. No, that that didn't work so good. Uh, then, well, okay, well, it has to be for the law. The law was broken, and somebody has to pay because if the law isn't uh, you know maintained, if there's no payment made, no, there's no justice because somebody has to be punished for the broken law. Or it's to God. God is angry. God's wrong. Somebody has to to pay to God this 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 ransom so that God then can be just and letting go, letting us go who deserve it. You've heard these kind of things? They're all wrong. Go to design law. Functionally, objectively, in reality, what is the function of a ransom? What to it do? It's the price necessary to achieve what? Freedom from somebody held in captivity or bondage. That's what a ransom does, right? What is it that holds the human species after Adam and Eve sinned? The whole species is held in captivity or bondage by two things. 
lies that we believe about God so that we don't trust him. Our minds are in darkness. darkness. The gross darkness covers the people. And so we needed the light of truth. We need a truth revealed to us to dispel the lies to win us to trust. But there's something else that holds us in bondage. Our carnal nature, which is directly connected to, a ter- it's a terminal condition. So you could say death or the carnal nature, both, holds us in bondage. We, we have a condition which, if unremedied, results in death. We can't fix it. We don't have a cure. And so two things are needed to free us. We need a truth to win us to trust, and we needed a new character, a new nature. And Christ came to reveal the truth, to destroy lies, to win us to trust, and to provide humanity with a perfect character and nature. And so that's the price necessary. That's the ransom price. And who then is it paid to? To us. When somebody is in renal failure, maybe it's your child, and you donate a kidney to save their life, you, we could say, wow, you paid a, you paid a pretty steep price to, to save your child. We, could, we understand that, right? That, that, there's, a, there's a sensibility to that, right? Is it a legal price? No. And who is the price paid to? Who gets the kidney? We get the truth and we get the new nature. The price is paid to us. It's not to God. It's not to God's law. It's not to the devil. That's who it's paid to. Yes. We have a profound misunderstanding of what happened at the one-man day. Israel was judged already and was coming to receive its judgment represented by the high priest. They had to have faith in their high priest to advocate for their, for their judgment. But the judgment had been already done. They came to receive their redemption. That was of the day of at-one-ment. Many people don't receive that understanding in terms of what at-one-ment means. It's not you're being judged. You were already judged in the day of trumpets. You're coming that day to receive your mercy at the mercy seat in the sanctuary on the day of atonement. So it's a profound difference of understanding what happens. We come and receive mercy not judgment. Just like at Passover, they were saved, not for keeping the law. They didn't even know the law at Passover. That's why the Passover sacrifice was a, uh, a thank offering, not a sin offering. The Passover was received by faith. If you believe you're Abraham's children, then you will do this. It's not about the law. It's God's mechanism to bring us back in to that unity with him. Yep. So Monday's lesson... First paragraph, some of the deepest divisions among people are caused by differences of race, ethnicity, and religion. In many societies, identity cards indicate the ethnicity or religion one belongs to, and these distinctions are often, can, uh, often are connected with privileges or restrictions that people have to live with on a daily basis. When wars, conflicts arise, uh, these markers of identity and differences often become catalysts for repression and violence. You know, so when we talk about uh, deep divisions, the, uh, deep divisions, you know, the first thing I, I had in my mind, I have to, we have to understand that this word division is not a bad word. I, I was the uh, division psychiatrist for the 3rd Infantry Division. And in the military, we have divisions. And when, when the U.S. invaded Normandy at World War II, there were many divisions, but they were not opposed to each other, they were just organizationally divided and they were all in unity for the same goal. Okay, So just because there are divisions, divisions can mean organizational structure, but that's not what they mean here. So I just, <laughs> just want to say that. So when there are differences, though, caused by division, and we do mean now fragmentation, hostility, um, what is the underlying motive that contributes to the fragmentation and hostility when differences exist between people and people groups? What's the underlying motive? 
Power, pride, selfishness. Selfishness and what drives selfishness? Fear. Fear. You will always, if you trace it back, trace it back to some fear with the need to protect self, which leads to seeking power so that I can feel secure because if I don't have power, I don't feel safe from these others. It's really driven by this fear-driven thing, which is part of the infection of sin. And this leads us to devaluing others as being subhuman and so forth. Um, Why do people get threatened and act violently sometimes when someone believes differently about God than they do? They're insecure. Let me give you this one. Have you ever known, maybe some of you have never seen this, I've seen this. Have you ever known someone who gets upset or angry at their spouse if the spouse has an idea, opinion, or conclusion that is different than their own? Have you ever known something like that to happen? Why? Why does that happen? Let's be, I'm going to teach you to think like a psychiatrist now. Why? Why does this person get angry when their spouse has an idea or an opinion or a perspective that is contradictory or different than, than the other? Because in the mind of the one who gets angry, an idea that is different is not, is not seen as a new possibility to be considered, examined, evaluated, and if true, appreciated. It's not seen as an opportunity. Instead, it's seen as an indictment against them that they are either wrong or stupid or ignorant. That's how it's seen. In other words, the one who gets angry is afraid, afraid of not being good enough or bright enough or smart enough and fears that if they're not the smarter one, the, the brighter one, that have all the knowledge, that they'll be rejected. And so their fear of abandonment and rejection causes them to be intolerant of their ideas. And then what do they do? They attack their spouse and criticize, and don't, which only causes division. Could this be a similar process with those who are intolerant of other religious ideas? If your ideas are different than mine, is this an opportunity for examination, for considering a perspective I've never thought before, and if true, for personal growth and advancement? Or is this an indictment that I, as the leader, the pastor, the, the conference president, the, 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 the theology professor, is this an indictment that, that I don't know something and, and I'm, the, I'm the expert, I'm the one who's supposed to know, and then and that don't mean I'm stupid and not qualified, and, and I can't be stupid and not qualified, so we have to reject that. Do we see the same dynamic at work? Possibly. Did you see this? Look, read your New Testament. How they responded when the blind man came in and told who healed them. We are the professors of theology. You're just a beggar. You don't know anything. Get out of here. You see this happening a lot. What about scientists and liberals who are intolerant of Christian values and beliefs? What do we see happening there? Do we find the same dynamic at work there? that they're afraid and insecure. Maybe they even have a little conviction of the Holy Spirit and they know they're wrong. And when somebody's under a conviction of the Holy Spirit and they know they're wrong and somebody tries to bring them light, they even get more angry. I'm not ready for the light yet. Don't, don't try to enlighten me. I know better. I'm happy in my darkness. Have you ever been taught in your eschatological studies that one day conservative Christians will take hold of government to enforce certain religious observances? Have you ever been taught something like that? 
And history is, of course, filled with countless examples. The Inquisition, uh, Christians persecuting Mormons, Muslims oppressing Christians, Christians persecuting, criminalizing homosexuality, murders and bombings of abortion doctors and clinics by Christians. We see through history lots of conservative people seeking to, to, to control others and force you know, them to comply. But what's happening in the United States today is the opposite at this very moment in human history. Those who reject a belief in God and embrace a humanistic, godless worldview are inciting mobs seeking to take hold of government to force people to live according to their moral standards. Whether it's by forcing people to provide abortion treatment, forcing people to participate in gay weddings, forcing people to share bathrooms with a gender-conflicted person who appears to be of the opposite sex. Now, I am not focusing on abortion or gender rights. I'm not focusing on any of that. We should all, we should treat all people with value and equality and love and kindness, valuing them all. What I'm focusing on is the methods people use and employ to achieve their ends. That's what I'm focusing on. And the godly method, we present truth in love and we leave people free. We don't coerce people to comply with our views. And if you're, if you're thinking about compliance committees to force people, coerce people, pressure, you can be sure this is not godly methods. God does not work this way. Yes. You know, one thing I have to appreciate about what we went through this last week is right now there's a huge devastation going on in western Florida and the division seems to separate when turmoil comes and people just come together in love. You know, you've got people of different race, different um, religions, different theologies working together to try to bring back uh, humanity there that's been devastated. So it's... Thank you for that. The point that I'm making is it doesn't matter if one is politically left or politically right. If one doesn't understand godly principles of truth, love, and freedom that founded on design law, they will ultimately resort to coercion of others. Left or right will always end up coercing. And, and, and the point I'm making for you guys is that we need to move away from rules and policies and checkbox thinking to principle-based thinking. Understanding and seeing the methods being employed and recognizing beastly methods when they are being used regardless of the issue that's being advanced. We cannot win God's cause using Satan's methods. And this is the trick of Satan. He gets good people to advance a good cause using his methods of coercion. Pardon? Or fear. Yes. But often, and, and, and when I say advancing a good cause, a good cause would be, for instance, in the Dark Ages, let's convert people to Jesus. That's a good cause. But let's do it by burning people to stake who, who won't comply. This is a bad method. You can't get that, okay? So, and, and the fear comes, and what's happening in organizations, organizational leaders become afraid. They are afraid that the organization will be corrupted. They're afraid that, that, uh, that, that bad ideas and bad doctrines will be accepted. They're afraid that distortions will come in. And so we have to exert more control to stop thinking and force people into little boxes so we can all be unified in our creeds and checklists. That's not unity, guys. That is not unity. Unity is when we say, hey, I love you. And we're at different points in our journey. And if you love truth, 
If you love people, if you love God, if you love his methods, if you're seeking to live in harmony with, with his principles and designs, it's okay that you go to church on a different day than me. We're still unified in Christ. It's okay that you wear jewelry and I don't wear jewelry. It's okay that you eat meat and I don't eat meat. There's so many things that are okay when we love each other. Is this what he meant when he said in me there's no male or female, no Jew or Gentile? Yes, all these divisions go away. We become unified. The last paragraph speaks about, oh, it says, uh, but, but, uh, second to last paragraph, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Is this referring to red corpuscles? Is that what it's referring to? This is a metaphor. This is not literal plasma that it's talking about here. It's a metaphor. What's the blood a metaphor of? The life is in the blood. So it's a metaphor for the life of Christ. And the life of Christ represents two things that we need. We've already talked. It's the ransom price. His life revealed the truth, which destroys lies. And his life was the perfect sinless life, a new character that we need. And so we are set right by accepting the truth that Christ revealed in his life and partaking of the divine nature, the perfect character of Christ that he developed as a human being. This is his life. We partake of it. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. It's a literal experience that we have symbolically represented by the blood. And the blood became wine. You know, it was the, the, the flesh and blood. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus said in John 6. And they got offended. They thought he was talking cannibalism. That's a metaphor. And it got changed to a different metaphor, bread and wine. And they're just symbols. And when you take bread into your body, it gets broken down into its molecular components and becomes building blocks of your actual physical body. Okay? When you take the word, the word became flesh, the word is truth, and when you take the truth into your mind, those truths become building blocks of ideas, beliefs, concepts that help form trust and character. And you open the heart, then you receive a character that Christ knew motives, desires, and principles that you didn't have before. That's the symbolic taking the wine. Well, there's more. We, we, we got, I guess, through Monday. So we're out of time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of reality, the creator who built the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water to operate in harmony with your character and nature of love. We thank you that you sent Jesus to adopt us, to take humanity upon himself, to fix what Adam has done. And now through Christ, you offer us the opportunity to partake of the divine nature, to adopt your perfection freely offered. And so, Lord, we we open our hearts and ask the Spirit will take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, and give us the ability to go out and share this truth, to break free hearts and minds that are stuck in a legal structure that obscures the knowledge of you and often prevents the growth and transformation that you want for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.